I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and it's good to see you all again. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship together with you on our celebration worship. We have elevation worship that follows this service as well, where you find a little bit different style of music, and so we try to cater to all of our heart languages of worship experiences. We're concluding this Sunday a series that we have called Supernatural. We're looking at the unseen, the afterlife. We've looked at heaven, we've looked at hell, we've looked at angels and demons and Satan's uh, tactics and the spiritual war that rages around us. And this morning, we're going to wrap up by looking into the future, the the prophetic working of God in this world. If you look at Scripture, you see the, the overt miraculous work of God in three specific areas of history. You see it during the days of Moses, where the tremendous miracles and the plagues took place. You see it during the days of Elijah and Elisha, where God brought great power to this world, the healing of people who were dead or sick. You see it in the days of Christ into the book of Acts, and uh, that was a great miraculous event, obviously the resurrection being the pinnacle of all of them. But there is one more time where God will bring about His great supernatural power on great display, overtly, very clearly seen, and those are the last days, the end times. The prophetic Uh, announcement that God has given throughout His book is huge. It's a major portion of God's Bible. And so we are uh, very excited to learn that. I recognize there might be uh, three classes of people when you talk about prophetic truths. You get the uh, very excited because a lot of people love prophecy. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, just a few years ago, that uh, it was not it was, in fact, it was normal that we would spend a whole week every single night of that week on a prophetic conference as we bring in John Walvoord and other great uh, prophetic uh, professors and teachers of those truths. And so there are the excited people that love prophecy. Then there are the people who wonder. Uh, they are the people that have studied this well and they know their, their prophetic truths. And so they just simply wonder whether I get it right. In other words, do I agree with you? And so there are those people, and then there are those people that are irrelevant. They feel this is an irrelevant topic because how is this going to possibly help me in my Christian experience, my marriage, my health, my finances, my job prospects, and uh, relationship issues and struggles that surround us. And so I recognize that there are those that struggle with prophecy because it feels irrelevant. Let me give you three words if that's the case for you. And the first of the three P's that I want to give to you is this. Plan. God has a plan. And every time I feel like life is sort of out of control and maybe the prophetic things are irrelevant to me today, every time I look at the prophetic words of God, the promises that He's given to us, and then the fulfillment of those promises, He promised it and then we can see that He fulfills it. I know that God has a plan. And whatever you're going through today, financially, health, relationships, struggles of life, depression, anxiety, fear, anger, addictions, whatever they may be, God still has a plan. And the second word is power. And that when you look at prophetic things, you see that God has a power to fulfill a plan. And that every time I see that God seems like the world is out of control, I know that you have a power that you're going to bring about your plans so that it will always be fulfilled and that God is a sovereign, controlling God who works after His will and after His Word those things that He has planned. And that in our daily lives, God has a power 
that is so powerful that it raises people from the dead, well, if that's His power, then His power is relevant for me. And the third P of plan power is patience. And for you and me, we need to be patiently enduring, faithfully living those things that I know that God's Word tells me to do. I can't control Iran. I can't control Iraq. I can't control the President of the United States. I can't control necessarily who's going to be the next President, the politics, the things I agree with, the things I disagree with. There is so much around me in the big world and in my little world that I can't control. But I know one thing to be sure is that I need to patiently endure and pursue those things God wants me to do and how He wants me to live my life. So as we go through this, remember those three words. And at the end, I'm going to remind you of those three words and I'm going to add a fourth. So hang on. We have an outline that is available for you, and uh, you will find it of great assistance as we journey together in the nine things that angels teach us in the end times. You're going to see the evidence of this. We're going to do kind of like a flyover. Just imagine yourself to be a drone, and we're going to drone over the book of Revelation. And I want to just stop every so often and show you specifically the angelic power that God is going to use in the end times but not just in the end times, but these angels are going to teach us and model for us. These are the things we should be doing now. These, these are relevant things that angels are doing because they are carrying out God's plan with His power as the people patiently endure during those last days. Here are the nine things that angels teach us. And it all pivots around the early promise that God gave to us. Like the angels, we should desire, we should hunger for a prophetic fulfillment of all that Christ has promised to us. You see the promise that was given to the nation of Israel in Genesis 12, what is commonly referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. I've even heard Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister of Israel, refer to this covenant, this promise that God has given to the nation of Israel. Way back in the days of Abraham, he says, "I, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We will be blessed to the nation of Israel. God gave to Abraham a promise of a land, seed, a generations to come, and a blessing. Those have yet to be fulfilled. So there's an Abrahamic covenant that has not been filled. The land, the seed, and the blessing have yet to be fully fulfilled as God originally gave that to them. So God wants to fulfill that plan. Then we go forward and we see that in Revelation, God is in the promises fulfilling that plan. That's why Revelation is so important. It is the fulfillment of the original promise to Abraham that is now being uh, brought to a climax in the prophetic words of Revelation 5. This chapter, Revelation 5, next to the resurrection of Jesus' chapters, this I think is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Let me show you why. In Revelation chapter 5 it says, and this is, the, this is John the Apostle, that great faithful follower of Jesus Christ. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John. And here is his Revelation. And just, oh by the way, notice that Revelation is a singular word. It's not Revelations. Petty? Yeah, that's who I am. But it's Revelation, singular. It's only one Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5. 
I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is John, his revelation of Christ in heaven, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. That would be typical of those days, have a scroll that was rolled up with seals that would peel off, that would reveal the seven scrolls, the seven seals of the seven messages that are there. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice in a highlight in the blue or the green, whatever that color is, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals. And no one in heaven or, on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. So they figured out, who's going to open this book? What is this book? I'll tell you in a minute. Reading on, verse 4. Then I, this is John, he begins to weep, and it means he wept and he wept and he wept. Why did he weep? He tells us, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So, who is the lion from the tribe of Judah from the root of David? That is Jesus Christ, of course. Jesus is there. He will open this book. What is the book? I'll tell you in a minute. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, these four angels that would surround God, protect His holiness and worship Him. And the elders, referring to the many of the believers that are there in heaven, a lamb standing, of course this is Christ, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Horns refer to power, eyes refer to uh, wisdom and knowledge and uh, ability to see all, which are the seven spirits of God and sent out into all the earth. And He, Jesus, came. He took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. John is watching heaven's story unfold. As he sees this book, this scroll, these seven seals, and he weeps over the fact that, that there is no one worthy to open this book. And then he sees Christ, the slain one, he stands, he rises, he goes to God Himself. God hands to Jesus this book. And Jesus is now to open the book. What is the book? The book is this. The book, in today's legal terms, is God's last will and testament. It is His living trust. It is His revelation of all that He's going to now do to conclude history as we know it today. It is God's revelation of the end times. It is God's sealing that I will now fulfill my promise that I gave to Abraham. I'm going to make it happen through the nation of Israel. And over these next seven years, I'm going to allow you to see how I will consummate history. And I will bring into this world the kingdom that Jesus originally came to offer them when He came the first time. He was rejected. And now I'm going to send Him back a second time. And He's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as a conqueror. And He will establish that kingdom that I always wanted on earth. And so it's God's last will and testament. It is everything that God will do in the end times. And it's now going to be fulfilled. And so the rest of the book of Revelation is the opening of the last will and testament of God. And all those promises that He will now complete so you and I can see that He is a truthful God 
He is a God with a plan. He is a God with a power. And He asks us to patiently endure as He now unfolds His last will and testament for us. And as a result of that, they worship. And they sang a new song. This is the angels, the, the people in heaven, the Old Testament saints. They're all in heaven. They're worshiping God. And they say, worthy are you to take the book. Why is Jesus worthy? Because He came. He died. He rose again. He conquered death. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is God. And so He is worthy. He is the only worthy one. No one can do that but Christ. And so He is worthy to break the seals, to unfold the living will and trust of God. And for you were slain, you were purchased for God, your blood. Men from, notice how global heaven will be. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Everybody will have an opportunity. And for those who say, what about those who have never heard? They will hear. God is all-powerful. He has a plan. He has a power. He makes His plans work. And so they come and they say, you have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. And we'll talk about that at the end. Here's my handy-dandy little chart that some people love and some people don't. But nevertheless, this is the way my brain works. The only thing you don't have on your written chart on the back side of the outline are the verses. I didn't think to put them on there, but I put them on the PowerPoint. But it shows the flow. And I can spend a lot of time on that, but it just gives you a sense of flow. But let me say this one thing. If you've been with me as I've taught through the book of Revelation, I think I've taught through the book of Revelation here two or three times. There is one key thing you need to know to understand the book of Revelation. And you seldom ever hear anybody say this, so I'm going to say it because you seldom hear anybody ever say this to you. And it is this. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, here's the key to helping you to understand it. The book of Revelation has a chronological flow that covers a period of seven years leading up to the thousand-year kingdom. The only chapters between chapters 5 and 18 that move that story chronologically forward in time are the verses, chapters I put on the screen. Revelation 6, 8, 9, 16. 6, 8, 9, 16. These are the chronological moving forward in time chapters that tell those things that God is doing. All other chapters, 7, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, <clears throat> they're all background. These are things that are happening during the chronological flow of 6, 8, 9, and 16. So for what it's worth, you'll study the book a whole lot more effectively and correctly if you follow the plan. So that's my little extra. <clears throat> I won't take a second offering for that. Now... Moving forward, God has an excitement in the angels in heaven as they see the fulfillment of His prophecy taking place. The second thing that we learn from angels is that we must recognize that God will care for us. He is a protective God. He's not going to callously cause us to suffer in the times in which there will be great tribulation on the earth. In Revelation 7, notice the angels. And I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. That means these angels are controlling the entire globe. God has four angels that are controlling history as it will be unfolding in those future days. 
and they are holding the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on earth or on the sea or on any tree. This is power. This is God's power that He gives to these angels. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And you'll see the revelation goes on to talk about the 144,000, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. God seals them. You know, today we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God protects His own. The angels make sure that happens. Thirdly, like the angels, we need to humbly worship Christ because He is the greatness. He is the power. He has all this power. And so the angels know Jesus better than we know Jesus. They're spending time with Jesus from the history of the past to the day to the future. They know Jesus better than we know Jesus. And they know He is the true, real deal. And so they worship Him. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worship God. Why are they worshiping Jesus? Why are they falling on their faces? Because Jesus has, He stands. He receives the book. He's opening the book. And they're now saying, finally, Lord, finally, you are going to consummate history. We've seen a lot of evil that goes in the history of mankind on that earth that you created. But now finally, Jesus, you are taking charge. You're coming back a second time. So they came and they fell down on their faces and they said, Amen, blessing, glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We sing those words. There's a song with those words in that that we will sing. And so they come and they worship. You and I are called to worship Jesus because He is the one who is worthy to open the book and bring about His will on earth. Fourthly, we learn from the angels, like the angels, we need to offer our prayers for God, for His final redemptive work. Sometimes you ever feel like your prayers aren't getting anywhere, they're not making it to heaven, God doesn't listen, God doesn't care. Well, let me show you what happens. Let's take a step into heaven. We're going to see what prayers, where do prayers go when we offer them, and what does God do with those prayers? That's what we learn about in Revelation chapter 8, 1 through 5. Here's what the angels teach us. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal of the book, this is the book, it is now being broken open so that there is more of God's prophetic fulfillment taking place, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, I don't know what that silence is like, but can you imagine all of heaven being silent for a half an hour as they suddenly realize this is what Jesus is going to do? This is what it means for Christ to come back? This is all the destruction that will occur in the return of Christ? So there's silence in heaven. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were in them, and those are the trumpets that are going to be Revelation 8 and 9. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. In heaven, there is a golden altar. There is a place of incense. The Holy of Holies, the temple on earth, was built and fashioned after 
this place of worship in heaven. Because on earth, when they built the temple and the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would take the coals, he would take the morning coals and the evening coals where the worship and the sacrifice of an animal took place. He'd take those coals where the sacrifice occurred. He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would meld it together with incense. Zechariah did that in the father of, of John the Baptist. You see him going in there where he didn't believe what God said and he was then silent for the next nine months. But he brought those coals into that censer and he mixed it with the incense and the incense with them would go up and it's like incense of a sweet perfume that goes to the, to the face of God as God receives our prayers like sweet incense. And so heaven is where our prayers go before God and they begin to go in the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints and they went up before God out of the angel's hand and then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake and what are these prayers if we had more time we would go into Revelation 6 9 through 11 and there you see the believers who have died in the tribulation as they enter into heaven and they ask God, God, how much longer will this tribulation on earth last? How much longer will there be suffering? And God says, go rest for a little while. Here's your white robe. I've got it well in hand. Would you trust me? So our prayers go before God like that. If you're praying for the redemptive work of God in your life and the lives of those you love, your prayers are like a sweet incense that goes to God's nostrils, if you will. It doesn't happen literally, but it goes to who He is. And He, he hears our prayers like sweet perfume and a, and, a, uh, and a beautiful incense of an aroma. And God says, I will then now listen and I will fulfill in my time. See, God has a plan. God has the power to make the plan work. But He asks patience. And our prayers are an act of patience, saying, God, how much longer will it take? And God says, you just rest. I've got it well in hand. So God is fulfilling that. And so like the angels, let your prayers be an incense to God until He fulfills the plan with His power. Fifthly, like the angels, we need to be aware that there are evil nature, the evil nature of the demonic attacks. We sometimes think that they're cartoon characters. We don't really believe in them. In Revelation chapter 9, we see how evil demonic beings really are. Today, they're disguised like angels of light. They look like righteous people, but they are evil. Revelation 9 says this, and the angels teach us this. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound by the great river Euphrates. You never read in Scripture that good or holy angels are bound. You always read that evil angels, which are demons, are bound. There are demons that are bound in a place called Tartarus. Uh, it is translated as hell. And so they will then some days be cast into the lake of fire. Then there are other demons that are being bound by the river Euphrates. They are being bound for a specific time and place where God is going to release them 
so they can carry out their evil deeds so that God can then finally judge them as well. So release the four angels, these demons that are bound by the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Well, that sounds pretty bad. But God is going to be controlling this in a way that you and I can't fully understand today. All that is simply to say that God has a plan, hour, day, month, and year. And God has a power to make that plan work. Patiently, we wait for God to carry out His plan. Here's the great river Euphrates, as it is today in the country of Iraq. Euphrates comes all the way from Mount Ararat and flows all the way down to the Persian Gulf. Euphrates in Genesis chapter 15 is the eastern border of what someday will be the kingdom of Israel. Today Israel is a tiny little sliver off there. As you can see on the left-hand side, as you probably know where Israel is, it's a tiny little sliver of land. In point of fact, when God gave to Abraham, He said in Genesis 12, I promise this, Genesis 15 repeats it in Genesis 17 and again later as well. But in Genesis 15, God actually says, here's the territory. Here are the markers. And the easternmost marker of the land that Israel will obtain when Jesus returns is the Euphrates River. Imagine what it would be like to go over to Iraq today and stand in Iraq and say, oh, by the way, I'm standing in Israel's land. How long would ISIS let you live there, you know? That's what God has promised to them. And it takes Jesus to make that promise of a plan powerfully fulfilled. And so you can see there the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River is historically the oldest river in the world. You see the Euphrates River mentioned in Genesis at the creation of the Garden of Eden. Euphrates flows to the Garden of Eden. So somewhere along the Euphrates River is where Adam and Eve began life. It is there where Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. It is there where Cain committed the first murder that ever took place. It is there where the Tower of Babel and the confusion of multiple religions began to break out. So the Euphrates River is a historic river and it will be central to the prophetic days and the last times. And why do you think there is always turmoil in Iraq and Iran and Israel and Syria and Lebanon? Because demonic beings, as much as you might think this is just a character, a cartoon thing, demonic beings are stirring up ISIS and every other evil deed. That's why there's such evil going on with ISIS, burning people alive, chopping off the heads of children. There's just such evil going on. And it's the demonic presence in the Euphrates River Valley and that continued corruption that is taking place. And so Revelation 9 shows these demonic beings that are now being held back. The appearance of the locusts was like the horses prepared for battle. Their, their heads appeared to be crowns like gold and their faces like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women and their teeth were like the teeth of lion. This is what a demon looks like. And to break those down, the demons have horses prepared for battle. It's a spiritual war that is going on. They have crowns like gold. They are victorious at the moment. They have faces like men. That means they're intelligent. They're identifiable. They are also having the hair of women. That means in the parlance and this culture of those days, seductive in nature. Unlike, I'm not saying that today. 
But the teeth of lions, they have purpose to destroy. They have breastplates of iron. They're defensible. They're not vulnerable to easy attack. They have wings. They're able to uh, move around mobily. Tails of a scorpion means that they are painful. And they will carry out their great power that is taking place in those day days. Let me move on quickly. Sixthly, the angels must receive God's Word. We must learn from them that God's Word is true. And we go through these times where God's plan seems to be failing. God's power seems to be weak. And we're losing patience in the journey along the way. We breathe and live in God's truth. We go to God's Word. It is the nourishment of us. We, like the angels, need God's Word. Notice what he says in Revelation 10. I took the little book. This is John. I take this book that's in the angel's hand. What is the book? It's the Bible. It's the Scriptures that God has given to him. And it says, In my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I eaten it, and my stomach be- it was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And he says, the angel says, John, I know this is overwhelming to you. How do you absorb all this of the last will and testament of Christ? It is enormous of the, of the destruction, the tribulation that is occurring. How do I manage in the very terrible conditions in which I live? And so the angel says, take the book and eat it. And so much of Scripture is sweet. It is sweetening. It is calming. It is soothing. But there is much in Scripture that we learn that is bitter because there is judgment. There is damnation. There is hell. And so there is much that we study here that is a sweet and fulfilling of God's power, His His blessings, His love, His kindness, His grace. But there is bitterness because we realize that all with that, there's the other side of the wrath, the judgment that God will execute on the earth. And so that is why it is both bitter and sweet. And John says, I need to absorb that. And so we learn from the angels that we must warn the people that Christ is coming back and there will be a judgment on the earth. Notice this. This is an angelic presence that is occurring throughout the tribulation. Not just one day, but throughout the entire seven years of God's tribulation. Notice the angelic evangelism that is taking place in the last days. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. An eternal gospel. It's the good news of Christ. This angel is flying all over the world like a drone, if you will, preaching the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God. Give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. There is an angelic being that is hovering all around the world preaching the gospel to fear God, worship Him. Even in the midst of tribulation, worship God, fear Him. You see His power. You see His life. You see He is real. What He said He would do, He's doing. Worship God and fear Him. And like the angels... You and I, we need to warn people. Will they all listen? No. If I stop preaching because some of you aren't listening, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? I don't stop preaching because I know some of you tune me out. I just keep preaching. I can't control your ears, but I can control my mouth 90% of the time. 
And so we want to communicate the truth. Whether they believe it's up to God, it's up to them, just preach it. So you and I need to warn people because God's judgment is coming. The hour of His judgment has come. It's the last days. Then it's still the last days because we all only have so many days. We're all going to die if we die outside of Christ. We're judged for that. So we want people to know that. Matt Davis shared this quote from Francis Chan writing in his book called Erasing Hell. The struggle of believing that there is a judgment to come. It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't make sense to all of us. Well, how would He save us by faith alone and Christ alone? How is that possible? Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it didn't sit well with us. As soon as we do this, we're putting God's actions in submission to our own reasoning, which is a ridiculous thing for the clay to do. So just because I don't like God's judgment doesn't mean I can stand in judgment of God. I need to accept both the good and the bad, the bitter and the sweet that comes from God alone. And like the angels, we need to be ready to return because Christ is coming back. And you and I who die before Christ comes back, we will come back with Him. This is a great chapter in Revelation 19. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is Jesus coming back. He's going to ride a white horse. And for us who love, you know, the, uh, well, in any case. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen. That's you and me. We're coming back behind him on the horse. I prefer being behind Jesus than in front of Jesus, trying to get ahead of Him, right? Even in today's world, don't get ahead of Jesus. Let Him always be in the front. And we're wearing these white, fine linen clothes, but we're going there to do battle, which we're following Him on the white horse. And from Christ's mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. The last will and testament is now being completed. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Get ready for dinner, is what he's going to tell them. Come and assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts of the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. That's the picture of lunacy. Christ is coming down from heaven on a horse. All-powerful, miraculous, somebody's riding a horse from heaven. Can you imagine coming from outer space, somebody on a horse, and you think you can defeat him? This is how evil the nations become in the last days and still are to this day. To reject Christ as powerful as he reveals himself to be. And some people say, well, if only I saw another miracle from Jesus, then I would believe in him. Here's one of the greatest miracles of all kinds. Christ returning on a horse coming seemingly from the moon. Just astounding. 
with an army of angels and myriads and myriads of angels and you and I following behind. And these nations on earth, these human beings, thinking they can defeat him, that's how deep sin resides in the heart of so many. When no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they don't believe. But don't stop witnessing. Don't stop praying. John Alexander shows how beautiful sin can actually be because we can do something about sin. Sin is the best news there is. That sounds ironic, doesn't it? The best news there could be in our predicament because with sin there's a way out. There's the possibility of repentance. You can't repent of confusion or psychological flaws inflicted by your parents. You're stuck with them. But you can repent of sin. Sin and repentance to Jesus are the only grounds for hope and joy, the grounds for reconciled, joyful relationships. You can be born again by Jesus' death on the cross and resurrected life. He waits to serve you from heaven and your heart. If you're here and you're still listening, I've got good news for you. And you've never believed in Jesus? You can repent now. You can put your faith in Christ that He died for your sins to remove the judgment of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you, when Jesus comes back, can be raised with Him into the heavens and worship with the angels around the throne of God and watch that incense of prayers be lifted before His face. And you can be pumped, become part of the family of God and the army that defeats the evil that's on the world someday. That can be your hope. So sin is good news because something can be done about it. And it's our choice as to whether I take the remedy or refuse it like those nations on earth that still want to fight the conquering Christ. It's a losing battle. So we encourage you to come to Christ so that we can then, like the angels, introduce the world to Christ's new kingdom on earth. Finally, all that God wanted to take place is going to take place. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Revelation 20. And then God says, that's pretty good, but I can think I can even do it one better. So He takes the earth as we know it today and He recreates the earth into a new earth and a new heaven. And here are some of those truths that God gives to us. And this is what the angel shows John. This is what John wants us to show others, that this is our hope, this is our future. In Revelation 21, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We're the bride. You and I, the church, we are the bride of Christ. And he carried me away in the Spirit to the great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem that you tour today. It's the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And so there will be a new Jerusalem perfectly created that he brings down to this earth. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Some people doubt prophecy. Some people doubt the book of Revelation. Some people say the book of Revelation is simply a bunch of allegorical spiritual truths that have no relevance. So why bother studying it? And John is telling us these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angels to show his bondservants, the kings, the things which must soon take place. We need to be students of these truths. And behold, I am coming quickly. Here is the great blessing. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. 
You want to be blessed? You want to have inner contentment and peace of heart? You believe that God has a plan? He has the power to make that plan work? And He asks us to patiently endure until His plan is fulfilled by His power, not mine. You're blessed. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And notice that the angels don't like us to do that. We don't worship angels here. And he says, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. I'm just a servant, an angel. And I'm one of the brethren of the prophets. And of those who heed the words of this book. And the angel says to John, John, the only thing I ask of you is to worship God. Worship God. Let me add to those words. When we began, I know that some think this is irrelevant. But let me just say, God has a plan. I've tried to outline bits and pieces of that plan. God has a power that He's going to make that plan work out. God has a plan for us every day, and He has a power for us every day. He has a plan for us for all of eternity, and He has a power for all of eternity. But what He asks of us is patience. To patiently, faithfully endure and live the life that God has called us to live for Him. Do those things you know you should do. Even though you can't control those things, you can't do. So patiently endure. But let me give you a fourth word. Plan, power, patience. And here's the fourth word. Praise. Would you praise the Almighty God that He has a plan and it's His power that's going to make it happen and I need God's strength to make that happen for me to patiently wait upon Him. And so I want to praise you in the meanwhile because every word of praise on earth is a practice for the worship that we will do in heaven someday. Sunday mornings corporately are to be a practice for all that God wants from us in heaven someday. So let's practice a praise, as the angel says, of worshiping God. Would you pray with me? Father, help us now as we come before you to worship you, to honor you, that you're the all-powerful one. There's so much in this book of Revelation that is overwhelmingly difficult. But God, may we take those bits and pieces that you stick into our heart and our minds and live them accordingly, prophetically, evangelistically, that we would make known the, re the reality of what you're going to do someday so that like the angels who hovered above the earth and preached, fear God, that we would be like that angel and encourage others to fear you and receive your forgiveness and be right with you. Help us, Father, as we worship you now and we thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.